must remember this A kiss is still a kiss A sigh is just a sigh The fundamental things apply As time goes Hello, by. welcome to T. Hanks from the Memories. I am your host, Darren. Today we are deep into Tom Hanks' golden period. We're on film number two, uh, Sleepless in Seattle. Uh, released on the 25th of June, 1993. Uh, for those who listened to the previous episode, of course, um, they will be aware that around this time, uh, A League of Their Own had a TV series that was very briefly on. And Tom Hanks directed one of the episodes, and it was not very good. And of interest, his wife in this film, his deceased wife, spoiler alert for literally the first minute of this film, um, was played by Carrie Lowell, who is also in the League of Their Own TV series. She took on the Gina Davis role. Um, and joining me to talk about it, I have Daniel Ifland. G'day. And I have Andrew and Kestra Doraski. Hello. 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 They don't hold back on us. We start the film. We're in Chicago. We know this because we can see the Sears Tower. Um, which I believe is called something else these days, but everyone still calls it the Sears Tower. Mm-hmm. Um, and we are at a funeral, and <laughs> Tom Hanks explains in voiceover to his son that, you know, his mother is dead, and sometimes this happens. And, uh, you know, it, what's weird is I couldn't, I didn't remember how, I knew he was widowed, but I didn't remember how this film started. And then when I was watching it again this morning, I was like, oh, they really, like, they just dump you straight into it. Like, there's no. There's no kind of like, um, you know, dragging it out. It's like literally you're at the funeral and Tom is telling us in voiceover that his wife is dead and, you know, we know that he's a father. Um, interestingly enough, when he was in the Burbs, he argued that he should not be a father because he didn't want to be seen on screen as being a father. Um, and this is only the second time that he's played a father on film. Tom Hanks is really kind of like, you know, trying to retain some kind of youth. Um, and not be seen as a father figure. But, I mean, he it's funny because, you know, the child in the Burbs was basically kind of almost totally written out of the script because he didn't like working with that actor. <laughs> so, um, you know, whereas in this, I think uh, the kid, I can't remember the name of the actor who's playing this kid in this thing now. Uh, yes, Ross, Ross Malinga. Um, yeah, he's, uh, he's really good as the kid and, you know, um, really kind of, helps kind of sell the idea that you know that tom hanks is a widower and that this is his son did you Um, think um when we open on that it is a very stark opening one it's an incredible view for a cemetery like just an absolutely incredible view like you would have to focus very hard on your grief to uh not be drifted over to the chicago skyline (laughs) there but the music is a little incongruous like it's it's almost like they're opening on the funeral but they know they need a little whimsy so that it doesn't shock the hell out of people when they're going to sleepless in seattle and they're opening on a on a funeral the music just has that little bit of sort of whimsy in the back notes just to make sure that you know you know, you're not watching Manchester by the sea. It is sleepless in Seattle. You're in the right place. Everything will be sort of okay. Yeah. Uh, what I'll say as well is um, uh, the the director of photography on this is Sven Nyquist, who, <laughs> who worked with Ingmar Bergman. And, you know, he's he was known for just kind of using natural light. And this is an amazing shot. Like the funeral, like the, the kind of the cemetery that overlooks the skyline of Chicago is kind of an amazing... And I mean, I've made a bit of fun about the fact that Nora Ephron likes her landmarks, but um, Sven Nyquist shoots all those landmarks 
so perfectly. Like the re- the reveal of the space needle later on is kind of it's so it's it just every single way that he like the the shots are composed is really well done. Um, but yeah, no, this is kind of a like like yeah, the music I guess has kind of remind us that this is going to be a comedy. And although we're opening up on a funeral, um, you know, it, there, there's like, some there there's some lightness to jokes. the music. Yeah. Um, and I think I think later on there was um, there was I mean, I don't want to jump too far ahead. But when Annie is stalking Sam again, there's like jaunty music. And I was like, <laughs> this is slightly odd. But I, I guess the music is kind of selling us on the idea that this is a playful thing rather than someone stalking a person from a distance and kind mm-hmm. of um, and I, it's the same with the funeral. Like, you know. And when we get to the wake and people are like giving him food and saying, you know, put this in the microwave and stuff, he, he like Tom is obviously selling the fact that he is heartbroken, and that is obviously you know that is the selling point of the film. That is the thing that you know will kind of drive most of the plot is ha- is how heartbroken he is. Um, and I you know I think um, th- yeah the music does feel a little too jaunty for that, but you know I I like the way it starts because the one thing that I will say about you know. Nora Ephron is um, she's she's not going to be wasting too much time with like exposition. It's like here you go, he's a widower, and then you <laughs> move on straight away to the next scene. Like they're not going to waste it. The setup is so quick, um, you know. And then obviously, also it's worth saying in 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 the most classic of rom com um, situations, he is an architect. And she is a journalist of some kind. I don't know. She works at the Baltimore Sun, but we never see her write a single thing. <laughs> so yeah, I think the idea is that she's a journalist. But you're right. Like the the story doesn't create a lot of space for her to do the writing. And of course, the fact that she's in the newsroom that we've seen portrayed in season five of The Wire. Um, I'm like that doesn't seem as bad as it was in The Wire. Everyone seems fairly happy in that newsroom. <laughs> uh, you know, they're laughing and joking. Um, but yeah, I mean, I, I I like the fact that we immediately like when he goes into work and obviously because he's an architect on his desk, he has tons and tons and tons of blueprints in mm-hmm. you know, all rolled up in, in tubes and everything. Um, and he gets this card from his co-worker who's, you know, who obviously is concerned for his mental health, which is, you know, that's nice. Um, and then he kind of goes on this rant as he takes out all these cards and just keeps putting them down. And and he like he just kind of is basically making the point that, like, everyone is trying to help him and he's kind of a bit tired of that. Like, you know, he's got literally all these different cards for these different groups, um, you know. And I can't remember the full list, but there's one where it's, like, you know, like, partners without... There, there, like, there's partners, partners without, without parents and parents without partners. partners. And he does yeah. not fit into one of those. <laughs> no. <laughs> yeah, so I, I just like how he's kind of... I, I mean, I guess people are just giving him yeah. cards, aren't yeah. they? Because they see that he's yeah sad. support groups and, um, and all that sort of stuff. I really love how Tom Hanks at the beginning, as his coworkers coming over, he you can tell that he's trying to work, but he also looks heartbroken and exhausted. He's just he just really portrays this grief in a great way. And then as he gets into the going through all the cards and gets very frustrated and angry, you can he just does a really great way of building that that anger up um, which you know that's what you want from uh, tom hanks a, a little bit of yelling um he doesn't do much yelling in this film to be honest like his yelling is is at a kind uh, of a minimum that is that is true but we will get to i th- i think the my favorite tom hanks yelling in any movie ever <laughs> is in this movie and it, i watched it again just now and rewound it a couple of times because it's such a good scene but we'll, we'll get to it yeah um but yeah so i mean 
you know, obviously he makes the choice that he's going to leave Chicago. I, I mean, I don't know what. I mean, I guess he wants a fresh start, but the view out his window is amazing. Oh, how could he <laughs> work? Like, you can't grieve, you can't work in Chicago. Everything's got a view that to die yeah. for. Oh, not literally. But yeah, yeah, it's it's like such a it's such a great view. I'd be like, why would you give up that office with that like with that view of Chicago? It's such a. But yeah, so he decides to move to Seattle. Uh, and then uh, in comes Jimmy Durante ruining the song as time goes by. Um, and I will say this up front. I am not, not a fan of whatever Jimmy Durante called singing. Um, <laughs> I, I, wasn't like, ex- I wasn't expecting that. In this. I'm glad now that we've got a note of controversy in a People's <laughs> in Seattle episode. It's, it's fair to, to refer to it as a Jimmy Durante performance. More than a song. Yeah, I- yeah, I, what, what I'll say is this: in in Punchline, there is a character who's like a sad sack who gets like the three AM slot and goes on last and kind of sings about how much he loves comedy and how comedy is his mistress and all this kind of stuff. And that character is is directly meant to be like a Jimmy Durante type of kind of singer. Um, and I like that character. That character's like a you know, it's a sad character, but you know, it has some pathos. Um, but I've just never. I mean, you know, I. I <laughs> It's gonna. It's gonna sound like I, you know, I hate something, but I've just never been a fan of this whole kind of like crooner style of singing where people just barely put any effort in. And you know, uh, there are some crooners who are good. Uh, you know, Tony Bennett announced his retirement at the age of ninety-five, um, and the reason he's been able to work to ninety-five is because as a crooner, you barely have to put any effort into the singing. So it's not like you're gonna lose your voice. Um, but yeah, so yeah, Jimmy Durante has obviously a very specific sound, you know, and obviously, you know, it made him money, uh, good for him, but I'm just not sold on this version of As, as Time Goes By, um, over like the opening credits. It just, I was just like, eh, you know, and he'll, he'll come back in at the end as well. And he I'm like, come back in, yeah. I put, I put in my notes, Jimmy Durante is back to ruin the end of the film. Um, and I, I was just, I, I was just not a fan of it. I mean, the funny thing is, there was a version of As Time Goes By in um, Volunteers, which obviously, you know, Tom Hanks and Rita Wilson, that's where they met. Um, so I don't know if somebody was like, oh, bring that back, because it's, you know, a reminiscent of a previous Tom Hanks film. But um, yeah, no, I'm not. I mean, the opening credits are nice enough, and obviously they will be mirrored by the, the end credits where we have this, you know, map of America um, bordered by nothing. Um, <laughs> so. Um, <laughs> The most US-centric version of America is one where Canada and Mexico do not exist and America just floats in this black void by itself, um, which obviously throughout the film they will use to indicate when people are traveling from place to place. Um, but yeah, but I, I mean, you know, I like I liked that we get the setup straight away. Basically, within the first five minutes, you know, Tom is a widow and he's moved to um, Seattle with his kid. Um, and, you know, that is, that is the setup. Um, and then we jump to Baltimore. Uh, where Meg Ryan is going to a family um, Christmas Eve party, I think it is. And she's with Walter, played by Bill Pullman. And she's giving him a list of, like, everybody in her family <laughs> and who they are and what they do. And the funny thing is, like, he she's saying all this, and I'm like, I'm never going to remember all this. And then Bill Pullman's like, you know, I'm not going to remember any of this. And I was like, yes, exactly. <laughs> this is just... You know, also, I don't know how long they've been going out together, but you would think before this point she would have brought up members of her family, like, in conversation or something. But I think the implication is that this is not, like, completely her core family. This is made up of, like, a lot of her... Like, I, I think she's only got the one brother and then his wife and then her parents. And I think there's, like, aunts and uncles and cousins. 
in this family gathering. And so yeah. I think it's the slightly more expanded family. And and I don't think yeah. you would have gotten the full rundown on them unless you were unless you were about to interact with them. It doesn't seem like they've been going out for super years. long. <laughs> yeah, like they have not been going out for eighteen months. They've been yeah. going out for I don't know, maybe six, six months. months. I mean, like it's long enough that they're living together, but not so long that he would have met most of her family. So I don't know what that what that time frame is. And maybe she had like briefly mentioned these other family members in passing. But it was like, okay, just so you remember, this is this person, and this is how their personality is, and what they do. Yeah, there was a. I mean, I, I'm, try, I'm trying to remember the name of the the actor who plays uh, Harold, because um, he was my favorite character. Oh, the, Harold, <laughs> Harold's allergic to bees, right? Yeah, that guy. Uh, and and the, he does he does nothing. He's not in the rest of the movie. But it's like, what is, what no. is he doing? Like just this complete deadpan. And Kester I'm pointed allergic. out, like, like, towards the end of the scene, he, like, fishes something out of his glass of, of wine. And, like, what? <laughs> what was the direction yeah. for him? And this was, like, I want you to be as uninteresting as possible. Like, unengaging. I don't know what it is. But it's actually kind of fantastic. I think, I think obviously, Francis Conroy is meant to be playing, like, this ultra-competitive mm-hmm. sister-in-law. Or cousin, or I can't remember what her exact relation is. Um, and she, like, every time Harold... Because obviously they, they talk about Walter um, and how he's allergic to everything. He's, li- he's literally... Yeah. <laughs> and he says it. He's like, he's allergic to everything. And I think it's funny because obviously that then is meant... Like, the competitive side of Francis Conroy's character then comes out. And she is then constantly saying that Harold's allergic to bees. He keeps bringing and it up. And then whenever they... Whenever they make a suggestion about, oh, the wedding's going to be, like, in the garden, and then Harold's like, I'm allergic to bees. And then, of course, at the same time, Walter is like, well, I'm allergic to, like, they keep bringing up foodstuffs. And he's like, well, we're, I'm allergic to that, so we can't have that at the wedding. And then he just starts, like, doing, I don't, Bill Pullman really kind of leans into it, does this, like, huge sneezing fit. Mm-hmm. And it's like, and then everyone's like, what's going on? What's wrong with him? And then she's just, you know, and he's just like, well, he's allergic to everything. And... I, I, yeah, it's like a. It's, to me, it's like a really weird scene because there's this kind of competitiveness about being allergic to stuff that's going mm-hmm. on, and like we say, this guy who's playing Harold is just literally doing the most deadpan. Like everybody else is kind of like playing fairly normal, but he's one hundred percent reacting to nothing and just saying, "I'm allergic to bees." The groan, the groan that he gives when the uh, father says, "Oh, we'll have it in the garden." <laughs> And he sort of goes, oh, <laughs> like, like, it's, like it's going to kill him that second. It's, it's very funny. Yeah. And, and of course, like, we never see any of these people again for the rest of the except, film. Like, except, for, just... except David Hyde Pierce. Yeah, except David Hyde Pierce. Obviously, I mean, I was going to save that for later on. But obviously, you know, this is right on the cusp of literally like the September of this year. Mm. Frasier started, mm-hmm. um, you know, obviously banking in on that Seattle fever that was in the air, you know, was <laughs> yeah. just, in just couldn't get enough Seattle. Yeah. Uh, apparently it, it rains there nine months out of the year, um, which I find funny because obviously later on, there are a couple of scenes where it is raining quite hard in Seattle. And, yeah. You know, I mean, which, you know, I mean, at this very moment as we record, it is raining right outside my window and it's mm-hmm. August. So I understand people wanting to go to Seattle, you know, just to, um, get away from the rest of the weather in, in in the other states but yeah um i this like this whole family interaction is so like 
it almost feels like it's from a slightly different film. I'm guessing this is like in an earlier draft, maybe some of these other characters came back at some point. Or there or, was another couple of uh, these gathering, studying, studying like throughout the movie. It feels like that there's going to be another one of these or there was going to be a, a wedding that was a near miss and they didn't call it off as early or something like that. They're definitely, they were supposed to yeah. be in it again at some point. Yeah, but it just, I mean, we then, we I mean, there is a, a recurring theme throughout this where Annie, you know, which is obviously Meg Ryan's character, um, she uh, doesn't believe in signs, mm-hmm. but then there's constant signs everywhere. So, you know, people keep saying, oh, that's got to be a sign. And that's something, obviously, that's also common, I think, with um, uh, with Jonah as well. He also keeps seeing things as signs. Um and of course, the fact that both Sam and Annie don't believe in signs, but both of them end up seeing a lot of signs everywhere, is is something that obviously is played throughout the film. Um, but yeah, she explains the story of how, you know, the lunch orders got mixed up and that's how she met Walter. Um, and I will say this, obviously, you know, uh, like I said, part of the kind of classic romantic comedy trope is the woman who is going to get together with the man is, you know, with someone when the film starts. And generally i think you know there was a point with some romantic comedies where they ended up making that person a complete and total bastard so she had to leave him because he was so awful uh whereas i think with walter i think they're kind of you know walking a line um you know with the fact that you know he's not he's not a terrible person he's just allergic to everything and you know, when we see, when we see their kind of setup when they go to bed, he's got like a, a you know a humidifier in there as well. Like five and these different are kind pill of like, bottles sh- and a whole stack yeah. of tissues. <laughs> they set him up like he's kind of a boring and kind of annoying person. Not not exactly that he's awful and a terrible uh, boyfriend or or anything. Yeah, just like, like he, he's he just seems... it's just like oh, it's it's Walter. He, he's just that guy. Yeah, like like they set him up so he's not exciting. I don't think he he seems like annoying. But it's like okay, like there is an amount of attention that is going to be necessary um, for his relationship and his his lifetime. And also they set up like um, Annie Meg Ryan's character is not providing the kind of attention that is going to be helpful. Like she's she's kind of scatterbrained and forgetful a lot of the time. It's like this is not a good person when you have a lot of yeah. pill bottles in the area. Yeah, cuz she's she's of, <laughs> often like oh, there was this one time that Walter and I had this one thing. Oh. What was it? What was it? Yeah, and so, and so there's like a lot of distraction yeah. and she forgets where she's going with something. And so I think it's less of like you were talking about where this guy sucks as, oh, this is a bad fit. You know, that like they indicate that a little bit with the kind of he's allergic to everything. And the fact that like how they, they met was like a mixed up sandwich order, which, you know, the mother, when they're having this mildly inappropriate conversation as she's trying on the wedding dress, yeah. um, you know, when she's kind of talking about how long it took for, um, you know, her parents to basically become sexually compatible. um. While she's going through that, like she's saying, oh, you know, like we met because of this. And and, and it's kind of like her mother has this kind of ro- romantic story about how, um, you know, when she says, you know, they were holding hands and she didn't know where her fingers were and his fingers were. And like she ha- she kind of is painting this very romantic picture of her own relationship. And then I think Annie is trying to match that energy, but it's basically they mixed up a sandwich order. Not really super romantic, yeah. you know, but then the, they kind of build it up to like, well, you know, who who would have also got that same sandwich order as you? But, you know, the only difference is the bread and, yeah. you know, like it, it, it's trying to kind of find a meaning and, and find some kind of romance 
where there really isn't any. It and was just like a very mundane thing that happened. Yeah. And they use Rosie O'Donnell and Rosie O'Donnell's character. Oh, they use Becky in the first half of the movie. Every time Annie mentions Walter, she rolls her eyes or is looking the other way and <laughs> yeah. makes a face every single time that she does it. Just yeah. as an audience surrogate, like, oh, this guy, he's fine, but jeez. He's also I, yeah. absolutely perfectly named. Like the name Walter <laughs> and Bill, Bill Pullman go together it's. I don't know if they changed the name after Bill Pullman was cast, but it's. It fits like a glove. Yeah, and the fa- they make mention of the fact, of course, he's Walter, not like he's. An, and she's when Annie says, "Has no one ever called you by like a nickname?" Yeah. He's. He's like, no. Uh, um, <laughs> so he's always Walter. And I always take Rosie O'Donnell's like eye rolling to be a little bit of eye rolling at Annie. Be like, this relationship's not going to work out. You're being dumb about this. Um, oh, yeah, not, yeah, not, not just that's like, oh, Walter, Walter sucks. It's, it's like Walter seems great. Like he seems like a pretty great guy. And but then, if you're looking at your friend, it's like, oh, well, he did this funny thing. What was it? And it's like you can't even remember the things that you love about this guy. Like you are being so <laughs> stupid about your relationship. And 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 like yeah. And Rosie O'Donnell can see through all of the like self deception that Annie does throughout the film. But before we meet Rosie, um, who obviously is a work colleague of Annie, uh, Meg Ryan, uh, she forgets a present that she's going to give to Walter's um, parents. And so she goes back in the house to get it, which means she's not in the car with with Walter as they're driving to his parents' house. And so she's going through various radio stations um, and one of which I can't remember what the joke was now. She like turns to one radio station. It's like you and your spleen. She's like, nope. And then kind of turns over Jing- to Jingle Bells station. Backwards is the other one, I think. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And I, I liked as well how she was kind of singing to Jingle Bells, but she was kind of just picking like the background vocals and she was just singing. I don't I, I know. It was it was a fun scene. Meg, Meg Ryan, of course, it should be noted, is a complete delight in this film. Um, obviously, America's Sweetheart. Uh, not to be confused with the film America's Sweetheart, which stars <laughs> Catherine Zeta-Jones. Um, but yeah, so she, I mean, she's great in this. She's, you know, like you say, she is kind of like the fact that she forgot this present and she's kind of going back to the house. And so that's why she's not riding with Walter. Um, it does kind of, you know, he, he seems to have like a very kind of strict regime of how his life is, probably because he's allergic to everything. Uh, whereas she does seem to be a bit more kind of ditzy and forgetful. Or, or um, chaotic. And then as she's, Yes, yeah, which, you know, I think, I mean, it's something that she kind of does, um, you know, very naturally, like, you know, she's, this is a character she's played a couple of times before, where she's, you know, this, this kind of more, more kind of forgetful, uh, chaotic character. Um, and we then get the, you know, the setup for, um, you know, the, the kind of premise of the film, uh, where Jonah calls into Dr. Marsha, um, and talks about how he feels that his father is sad. Um, and then obviously she asks to speak to to him and, you know, he, he reasons that his, you know, his father won't be happy <laughs> to be you know past the phone. And, you know, Dr. Marshall makes a good point that obviously, you know, he's not going to be angry at him for trying to, you know, help his father and express his concerns. And, you know, she turns out to be, you know, kind of correct. Um, and obviously this is where we get one of the first things where um, we kind of guess that Annie is meant to be with Sam <laughs> when, um, you know, she she does this whole kind of like she says that at the same time as Sam. Sure, you do. Like they're both, mm-hmm. you know, kind of um, incredulous about uh, what Dr. Marshall wants to do. 
Um, and then obviously she names because they're not, you know, allowed to give out um, surnames on the radio. And I like that they kind of bleep Jonah as soon as he says his full name. I thought that's quite that's like a neat thing that they did. Um, because obviously, if everyone knew the surname, it make things a lot easier for Annie. Um, but yeah, so Annie kind of like, you know, she she listens to the story of Sleepless in Seattle, which is what the doctor calls him. And I I think the funny thing is, you know, obviously, Annie, as she's in the car, you know, she gets involved with this story. She goes to a, a you know, a diner where everyone's also listening to it. Um, and they're kind of debating about, you know, what he how kind of, um, you know, unkempt he would be because obviously, you know, the way that men just put things back in the fridge and all this. There's kind of um, some stand up that kind of works its way into this film. Um, and, you know, as she kind of gets into the story and she starts crying, which is a wonderful performance from Meg Ryan, you know, it works perfectly because Tom Hanks is given like it, it's weird because it's like you know obviously in his next couple of films he's going to win an Oscar, but I think if he if he isn't selling you know the story and his sadness then this film just does not work, you know you can't have Meg Ryan crying if the performance being given by Tom Hanks does not cause you as a viewer to also kind of cry, and you know it's it's an amazing scene as he's kind of describing how perfect his wife was and how he misses her and kind of, you know, this, you know, this, it's funny because when the doctor is like, you know, when he's like, Oh, should I call you Marsha? And she's like, Dr. Marsha. <laughs> it's like, you know, it makes it seem like it's a bit kind of comical that this kind of radio doctor who might not even be a doctor is the person that he's kind of, um, you know, kind of confessing his grief to. Um, and, you know, obviously you have to, it has to set up the, the premise of the rest of the film, which is basically that women from around the country are bombarding this radio station trying to get his number because the story is so good. Um, and I think he's, you know, he sells it perfectly. And then as Meg Ryan is, is there kind of like, you know, listening to it and crying, that also kind of sells it as well, because as a viewer, you're like, well, yeah, of course, you know, it's it's an extremely sad story. Um, and also, by the way, this is a romantic comedy, so I'm sure something's going to be funny at some point. Um, but yeah, I, I mean, it's I, I think it's like in, in like in terms of the film, you know, that and like, you know, the ending of, the, of this film are probably, you know, two of the kind of best scenes in here. Like just the way that Tom Hanks, you know, and the way and the fact that Meg Ryan is reacting to it, like those two things really sell the premise because you have to believe from this point on that, you know, people would send letters to a radio station about this story it can't it, you know you can't just be told that unlike in the film punchline where we're told continuously that tom hanks is a hilarious stand-up and we never see any evidence of that on stage um apart from maybe two minutes towards the end um so you know there has to be this kind of thing where you have to believe that this would happen um, and i think tom completely sells it and meg ryan as well like they both they both make you believe that this would cause like you know a minor sensation not the radio station Absolutely. I, I love Tom Hanks in this sequence, just like the the postures that he does and the way he moves his body, because it's, you know, it's a talking scene, but he's talking on on the phone. And so he doesn't even have someone else to like play against. So it's functionally monologuing for him. But I love that the way that it also sets up uh, his his um, personality as a father and how he how he loves his son. There's one small moment. Yeah. When like he first gets on the phone and he looks at Jonah and then he kind of like realizes how important this is to him. And he realizes, you know, that Jonah is paying attention to his emotional state and he kind of gives this smile, but it's like, it's a very it's, it's a small, small, small si smile, sad smile. Yeah. Where but he's like, he... okay, I'm going to do this. And you know, he's, he's giving in. Yeah. And he, and he's like, Oh, 
my son really is worried about me and cares about me. And, and then he's like, later, he's like, oh, this is fun. <laughs> I, I think he's being sarcastic yeah, about that but, to some degree. To some degree. But I think but, he but yeah, also it, loves that his, he has this moment with his son. At this the is same the first time. real like father-son moment. Yeah, that. exactly. He quickly jokes. He says, you know, like he's going to he's going to break his son's radio. And it's like, you know, you know, he's not going to do that. Like, but it, I like the way that he kind of immediately jokes about it. And he, you can tell that he get kind of as the scene goes on, he gets more comfortable. Mm-hmm. Yeah, their relationship's very exaggerated. Obviously, it's a movie, but it, it never rings false. Like he's he's genuinely exasperated by the kid while he loves him. And they have a very a close enough relationship to be able to you never feel that it's going to be broken by the things they do or say to each other ever, which is how most, not all, but how most parent-child relationships are. It just it just gets exaggerated for the movie, but it always has the, the truth behind it. Yeah. And of course, uh, you know, Annie's curiosity has been piqued and, you know, uh, she, she comes into work, um, you know, a few days later, I'm guessing, because I don't think they work on Christmas Day at the Baltimore Sun. I mean, they might. There's probably someone there. Um, but she comes in and Rosie O'Donnell and her two other co-workers are there. And in more, the, more people in the that we don't see thing, again. Yeah, we will never see these two guys again. I'm not going to bother telling your names. I don't even really want to figure out who the actors are. They're just two guys that are in the scene. Kenny from Frasier turns up. Yeah. <laughs> well, they're just they're just there because we want we need to be introduced to Rosie O'Donnell. And the funniest thing is as they walk in, the one guy says He's very angry and, you know, but he makes the best soup. And I was like, mm. are they referring to the guy from the Seinfeld episodes? And yeah, they were. They like that, like the the guy who used to run what was called Soup Kitchen International, which is like such a, a weird thing. He was profiled in like 1989 in The New Yorker. Um, and his name is uh, Ali Yuginik, I think it is. And basically, you know... It, he was he was like kind of well known for doing exactly what is in the episode of uh, Seinfeld, um, and later on he he opened a different franchise and he had a TV series and there's a whole bunch of stuff. But I just thought it was really funny that they're just like casually mentioning <laughs> this. Like it's going to be like another like th- two years before the Seinfeld episode comes out, so it's really weird. I was like, oh, that's um, yeah. So I just thought that's quite funny that obviously Nora F one probably you know would have been aware of of the kind of that guy is like a bit of a cultural phenomenon so he just kind of in a passing mention um is put into the into the film now that you've um put that seed into my head from earlier Darren, i just i love the idea of this four-person editorial meeting about um overnight radio stations and uh soup people from new york is you know in one you know buried deep in series five of the wire you just pan, and they don't talk to them, but you just see Rosie O'Donnell and Meg Ryan in the background <laughs> as you go around in one of those episodes. <laughs> yeah. Uh, I'm going to be honest. I think Meg Ryan would have had to take a buyout way before, um, you know, way before we got deep into season five of The Wire. She yeah, seems if, like if, one of those writers who they would just have to pay off just because she's not really doing anything. If this is the sort of um, thing that they're doing, yeah. There, there should be an early, early casualty. Yeah. Yeah, she's just sitting around not doing anything for the whole film, um, apart from using her resources to to hire a PI, uh, which we'll get into later. But yeah, I mean, I it's funny because obviously she brings this up with Rosie O'Donnell and they kind of talk about it. And then there's this weird, I don't know what this article was, but apparently 
uh, it's you know there's something about people being terrorists like more likely to be killed by a terrorist than be able to get married over the age of 40 yeah as as an old i this trope was everywhere around that time like it's a very it's a very um sort of u.s new york sort of i don't know this is baltimore but that sort of you know it was in the i don't know you would have maybe seen it in suddenly susan or, or carolyn in the city or or an earlier sitcom of that style it was it was sort of a very common trope at the time i ju- it was just because the thing is it gets brought up later by a different character <laughs> and mm. it's like an argue i don't know what i don't know why people are bringing this up because it's like it's like it's an argument against what being able to find someone to get married yeah to. I, like, yeah the, i think that's the whole point is like yeah. statistically we're just yeah. saying that like love is unlikely and i think like it's so absurd that the movie's not saying that this is accurate but it is trying to say it's like hey like <laughs> It is a long shot for these two to get together, but we're here for the long shot. But all the female yeah. characters are all like, no, that's not true. Whereas all the male characters are like, no, this is a statistic that I read. And so obviously <laughs> it is true. Yeah. Uh, well, that, yeah, that is the notable thing. So, uh, yeah, the film isn't really committing to it as a truth because they literally always like that is not correct. So, um, but yeah, I, I mean, it, it comes up a couple more times later on in the film, but. Um, yeah, and while this is going on, while Annie is kind of like figuring out whether or not she's going to do some work, um, we find out that the radio station has been getting like a ton of mail. And obviously Jonah being the responsible child that he has gave his address to the radio station. <laughs> um, and what I like is like Tom Hanks is like, well, what, you know, because he's like, well, the radio station called me and asked for it. And he's like, well, how did they get the phone number? And he's like, well, you have to give the phone number when you go on air. So it's like it's just a series of the kid just basically giving information up for free. I mean, he, you know, he said the surname on radio. Fortunately, they bleeped it out. Um, and then I do kind of like how he starts opening some of the letters and he's instantly rejecting them. And then one of them, Tom Hanks is like, this sounds like my third grade teacher. And then he reads up more and he's like, it is my third grade teacher. I love the face he makes with that because he's like, obviously it's like, I'm making a joke here. And so his joke face is on display. I'm like, that's a good face where he's like, I'm joking with my kid. I'm saying something ridiculous (laughs) for my kid. And it's, it's great. And he's doing all this. um, This is something that they do a lot in this, in this movie, I, in particular, making food. But they do a lot of, like, business. That's what they call it, where your hands have to be busy doing yeah. something through a scene. And in this movie in particular, it's like, man, it's always food stuff, right? Like, he's making burgers here. And later on, Annie's peeling an apple. And she's always, like, making tea or arranging her silverware. And he's always... Or grabbing a coffee from a diner. Yeah, he, he's grabbing a coffee or he's where he's shucking oysters or something. Like, there's a lot of food business. Yeah, and I as well, Then when the, in the next scene when they have the conversation about whether or not he will have sex with the next person. <laughs> which is... What the I, teeth brushing. What I, lo- what I love about it... Yeah, while they're brushing their teeth. Yeah, but what I love is he... He he doesn't react in a way that make like he's just like yeah maybe probably like oh, you know. he says I certainly he, hope so yeah like he's he's not he's not he's not reacting like it's a bad thing to discuss with his son mm-hmm. he's just like yeah well you know it's something that's going to happen it's, it's so part of a relationship he may as well discuss it yeah and I, what I like as well is the fact that his son like will she scratch up your back now <laughs> this is the thing he's confused <laughs> about yeah I don't know if this is a direct reference to Turner and Hooch because I'm sure Daniel will speak speak on this as well in that film. Tom Hanks's character has sex with Mayor Winningham, and when he's in the kitchen wearing nothing but like underwear, you see scratches on his back. So I don't know if it's a reference to Turner and Hooch. I don't think it probably is, but I do like that. Like you know, he he brings this up kind of confused as to what's going to happen after they have sex, 
And he's just like, you know, how do you know about this? And his son's like, oh, my friend's got like a cable subscription. And yeah, but I like I like that Tom Hanks doesn't like freak out or he doesn't climb up or anything. He's just like, you know, casually discussing it. He's like, yeah, you know, like that is something that will happen. Um, you know, he's not he's not going to uh, get all kind of, you know, uh, het up about it. It's also um, a, ti- a time-honored tradition for parents if your child swears or something. Well, it is in our house. If your child swears and it's in context, don't make a big deal of it. Just keep moving along. Act as if that was the conversation you had because if you start to... Uh, pick at that, you know. Jonah brought it up in a very normal way, so treat it in a normal way. It's yeah, it's a charming little scene. It's it, it's a it's a healthy yeah. discussion about a topic that most families are probably not having healthy discussions about. And then, in contrast, we see Annie and Walter in bed, and they are definitely not doing what the song says in that they are not making whoopee in any way at all. They are like, and you know, I love that Meg Ryan, Meg Ryan kind of sells this whole thing of like, obviously there is a routine that Walter has to go through as he goes to sleep. And she just kind of, at this point, this is when she starts to look like she feels trapped. Like she's kind of looking around as if to say, why, what am I doing here? Like, what is this? <laughs> like, you know, it, it, like really as a couple, should we be having stuff in the bedroom where I'm constantly handing him like tissues to wipe things down and stuff? Like it's, I, I like that, she, you know, she's not, there's no like anger or anything, but there seems to be like a mild confused, confusing of like, why am I still doing yeah. this? Like, why is, is this the, you know? the life that I want long term? Yeah. And I think obviously Nora Ephron is contrasting that by having a cover of making Whoopi played underneath, which, you know, is like, the, I, I don't know. I think there's obviously there's, there's some kind of ironic commentary there where, you know, you have a song about, you know, it's another season for making Whoopi. And that is definitely not happening at any time in the near future in this bedroom, um, you know. Um, and then for, I mean, obviously the the plot has got to keep moving. And so, um, you know, Annie gets up and she listens to the radio um, in the wee small hours. And for some reason, they're playing like the best of Dr. Marsha. I guess maybe she has Christmas week off or something, New Year's, New Year's week off. I think, I think um, it's the radio station like advertising the best of. It, like they're not even like playing big clips; they're playing small clips. I'm like, yeah. So they're they're advertising their own show for like a best of, or like, are they selling tapes? Or but also, Sleepless in Seattle is the longest. Yeah, they clip. give like a really long. <laughs> yeah, every everyone else gets like thirty seconds or ten seconds of like a call, uh, where they've all got kind of different names, and then it gets to Sleepless in Seattle, and it basically plays like two minutes of his call, mm-hmm. and it's like. Okay, I get it. Obviously, we're in the film Sleepers in Seattle, but at the same time, it does seem a bit suspect that that's the one that gets played the longest. And obviously, also that Annie is coincidentally up, you know, early enough to kind of hear it. It's a sign. Um, I mean, it's possible that the radio well, station was like, well, this one was getting yeah, all like we, the attention. We got a lot of mail. <laughs> so we got to play it for, for yeah. a good long time. We know where our bread is buttered right now. <laughs> yeah. I, well, I mean, I did put in my notes. For some reason, they replay most of his call. Um but yeah, I mean, again, like Nora Ephron is someone who, um, yeah, I mean, if you've ever watched When Harry Met Sally, like it is ruthless in how quickly exposition gets put out and they just move on to the next thing. So I like that she's kind of keeping, you know, obviously it's not like, I mean, uh, the impression you get from like the traders and stuff that came out for this is that basically he's calling the radio station like every day or whatever. But it's obviously that's not the case. Mm-hmm. They just keep replaying that call because, you know, a lot of people listened and it got a lot of, like you say, it got a lot of action. So they may as well put it in their ads. Um, 
And this is obviously where Annie goes to see uh, Dennis, uh, David Hyde Pierce, again. I mean, you know, give it a, a wonder. I mean, he's only really kind of in this scene, you know, properly. And it's a, it's a nice little performance of, of you know, a brother and sister. Um, and I kind of like how she's question, she's like asking questions about like his marriage. And it sounds like he's just like, you know, I got married, like, you know. Yeah, <laughs> like, like, he, he says like, well, the options were break up or get married. So we got married. And he doesn't seem super confident in that decision. He's like, but it's the decision that we made. Yeah, so I, but I, I, I kind of like his indifference to his own marriage, which is just like... And and uh, the fact that like for the show that he's going to be in in three months, like very much so, <laughs> where, which yeah. also takes place in Seattle, where it apparently rains nine months a year. But what I, what I like about this is like the fact that she's like discussing you know her own kind of like doubts, and he gives her nothing. Yeah, like literally every t- every time she's like, yeah, but what about this? And he's like, you know, I, you know, I got married. Like, what what can I say? Like, there's no further discussion to be had. Like. He's not, like, encouraging her or anything. He's just, like, saying, yeah, you know, like, you know, you might not like Walter, but, you know, just get married to somebody. And Walter might be that person that you might have to get married to. Like, there's no real alternative here. Like, what's the alternative? Break up with Walter and, you know, maybe never get married? Mm-hmm. Like, you know, I I like his kind of, his indifference to everything. He's just like, you know, just do it. Just get married. Like, you know, who cares if you've got cold feet? Well, and, <laughs> and, he, and he has, really like, mad. a whole thing where he's like, love's not real. It's just neuroses. <laughs> yeah um but yeah i mean david hyde pierce obviously a wonderful actor in fraser i mm-hmm. mean you know obviously people came for kelsey Grammer, but they stayed for david hyde pierce um you know he just uh yeah and i i, I mean i kind of i kind of like that because that contrasts with what sam is going through where for some reason him and rob reiner are discussing his behind um <laughs> well he's like finally trying to get back in the game and you know the dating game and he hasn't done it since I mean, it's been 10 years. And so he's like, yeah, what's what's dating like? What are women into? I think that's fair after 10 yeah. years to to have a question. Yeah, but what I, what I like about this is that Rob Reiner is like, for some reason, women like cute butts now. And if you haven't got a cute butt, then, you know. You're out of luck. What, you know. Yeah, and, and <laughs> so I like how they... They just stop like in the on the middle of the street and he's like picks up it like the back of his coat and he's like, What about my butt? And he's like, Yeah, it's okay. I mean you <laughs> well, can't really tell in those pants. Yeah, you can't tell in nineties fashion. No, well, yeah. The, the baggy slacks. It's like there's no way to tell if that that's a cute butt or not. It's nineteen ninety two. Everybody everyone's butt looks flat in those pants. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> they look flat, their yeah. shoulders look huge. Mm-hmm. And the hair is just slightly out of control. I really enjoy that about this movie. Tom Hanks's hair is hanging. By oh his yeah, head. I, like, think, it's like, I, I think I really want to get out there, but it looks like it looks like he makes a point of not getting a haircut throughout the entire movie. Like I think it's way longer and shaggier by the end. So I think he went like the entire two or three months of the movie and it's like, okay, we're not going to give him a fresh haircut. It's just going to keep going on yeah maybe he saw he knew he'd signed philadelphia and forrest gump coming up and he's like my my hand oh, cuts yeah, are pretty sharp be, in those yeah, boys yeah. i've got to i've got to get this in while I can. <laughs> his hair is going pretty soon yeah uh yeah this is kind of the last vestiges of of tom hanks's 80 poofy hair because mm. you know after this most of the next few films he, he's got a like you say he's got a tight haircut but yeah i did think his hair was slightly out of control um, and he doesn't even make conversation about saying like he doesn't want to get a haircut later on because he, he he'll just look like he's just got a haircut, <laughs> which mm-hmm. I understand that that's that's obviously a concern. You always uh, want to I get it two weeks it. before whatever you're getting the haircut for, <laughs> at least. I mean, so- I personally have not had a haircut in twenty years, so uh, 
you know. Yeah, no, I, mean, I, I, I look forward to your discussion <laughs> then, Darren, when you get to those Dan Brown book movies because you oh, might have had that two oh. weeks prior to, I don't I, know, yeah. like, was that an act? What happened? So I'm sure I that will form half of the, uh, half of the um, <laughs> discussion in those movies. I am not looking forward to watching those films. Um, but yeah, I should also note as well, obviously, you know, you say, he, I mean, he went straight from filming this straight into Philadelphia. Like there was literally no break. Like he literally, as soon as this film was out, he was already filming Philadelphia. But it should also be noted that on the weekends, he was doing voices for Toy Story. He was um, in, on the shoot. He was uh, he was going into a recording booth on his time off and he was recording lines for Toy Story um, and then sending those off to Pixar. Uh, obviously we'll discuss that at a later date but uh, yeah so it's interesting that like this is like you think of this as being like oh this is like early 90s Tom Hanks but he's already he's already doing Toy Story yeah he's, he's getting the work <laughs> he's already in. filming Philadelphia yeah um, it, it, this movie does have that very it has an early 90s feel but it's 93 which is early 90s still but if it had been 94 it would have felt very out of place it does have it very much feels like that sort of 89 to 92 yeah it, feel, it, it like almost a, feels like an 80s yeah. vibe I mean, especially because Meg Ryan's hair has a very a lot of and, and Rosie O'Donnell's their their hair seems almost eighty style with the volume. Yeah, I will yeah. say this: I I loved Rosie O'Donnell's hair in this film. It was great. I was yeah. like, that suits her perfectly for her character. It, uh, you know, it was obviously someone who just likes to roll their eyes at everything that is going on. Um, yeah. So, you know, following the, the discussion of, of butts, we also have some stuff about um, what is the dessert that they talk Tier, about? Tiramisu. Uh, tiramisu. Tiramisu, yeah. And Tom Hanks seems to think that this has some kind of sex act, um, which is weird because, like, to me these days, tiramisu is like, like, everywhere sells tiramisu. Like, like but I, obviously in 1993, it was like a novelty that. No, but, like, you can, um, you can get, like, a box of tiramisu at the grocery store. Well, yeah. Like, it's a common dessert. And, and so, so it, it is weird to think of it as, like, a, a novel item. It feels like it feels like the thing that used to happen in a lot of 80s action films where people would mention sushi, and they'd be like... Like, they, they didn't understand why people would eat sushi. Um, and then, obviously, you know, 10 years later, everybody's eating sushi, so it just seems a bit weird. But, yeah, I, I mean, I thought that was mildly amusing, but it did feel like it was a bit of a stand-up routine that had snuck in there somehow. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and Rob Reiner and Tom Hanks were doing a tight five on tiramisu. And I was like, oh, okay, like, I get their friends. Obviously, we see some stuff where he's still working on, um, you know, buildings. He hasn't quit his job as an architect. He's just moved cities. Um, although, I would say... I, I don't know that an architect is particularly concerned with the color of like cupboards that are going it, in I think someone's it, kitchen or whatever. He's definitely it, changed it, jobs. He's definitely yeah. It's more jobs. of a con- contractor kind of stuff. He's, yeah, he's the okay. architect, but he's not like those sort. Of, the architects that works in the building he was in in Chicago do not personally oversee building changes in a house. Yeah, so <laughs> so he's like the the manager for this construction project for a house instead of. I think I think it says at some point that he's like the architect who designed a plaza in Chicago. It's like okay, that's very different. I was I was confused because I was like I don't understand why an architect would be concerned about this stuff. But yeah, it seems like he has switched his jobs a little bit and he's more of a site manager. But you know, but that can still be uh, like architect has... blueprints. Like he's the guy yeah. at the top of the chain. Like okay, yeah. here's where the walls are and everything. And then he's like working with all the specific contractors who are like okay, there here's our our paint guy. Here's our brick guy. Here's our cabinet guy. Yeah. It just felt a little bit odd because I was like, if you know, the idea of making someone an architect is so that they can have a ton of money in a romantic comedy. That is literally the only purpose. Yeah, for whatever um, reason, so architects he, never have to worry about money in the in the in, in the movies. Yeah. Um, so, but uh, yeah, it did feel like his job had changed a little bit. But then, obviously, there is some discussions with the fact that um, you know he should meet some women. 
Um, and he's, you know, obviously reluctant to do that. He's still got a ton of letters from the radio station. Um, we get to meet uh, Gabby Hoffman, who is playing uh, Jessica, who is the friend of Jonah. Um, and she has this thing where she abbreviates everything. <laughs> Which, so when she meets um, Tom Hanks for the first time, she's like, uh, is it HMB? H&G. Which is... And she, H and G, yeah. Hello and goodbye. Which is, I, which later on leads to some kind of confusion. Uh, but I do like that they kind of had this. I mean, basically, it is almost like she's inventing like I don't know emojis or something. Like there's this weird kind of, like I don't know that Nora Ephron pro- probably understood what nine or ten year olds were actually speaking like. So she gave this character this weird affliction, and then you know Gabby Hoffman, who I should say as well, is a wonderful actress, um, and she really. It's weird because you kind of meet her halfway through the film, and and then. Her role becomes more important as the film goes on um, in that she kind of starts encouraging Jonah to do stuff that probably he wouldn't have done, um, you know, by himself. Having those uh, two, having the two of the kids being so charismatic, if not particularly kid-like a lot of the time, helps the movie out immensely in that middle part and, and the second half because you, they have to hold the screen a little bit, they have to be funny and they have to be clear, and they are all those things, uh, Jonah yeah. and yeah, Jessica. They come across really, really well. I mean, Gabby Hoffman, to this day, is a wonderful actress. You know, pretty much everything I've seen her in, I've always enjoyed her. Um, I think most recently she, I mean, most recently, it's a few years ago now, when she was on Girls and she was playing like this kind of out of control, like kind of the sister of Adam Driver's character. And she, and the thing is, she kind of matched Adam Driver's energy on Girls. And Adam Driver on Girls was insane. I mean, Adam Driver in most things is insane, but he really kind of cranked it up and she matched him. And it was kind of amazing to see the pair of them on screen. Um, but yeah, she's great here as as this kind of particularly how they kind of they swing the kind of the chair around yeah, <laughs> slowly with the, the feet and then just like tapping yeah yeah which I just kind of like the you know they they are they are acting as you would expect two kind of uh, friends of that age to act um, now obviously while this is going on um, Annie is rewatching An Affair to Remember and uh, with Becky and they are both crying at uh, this film and. You know, she's kind of been encouraged by Becky to send a letter um, off to the radio station um, so that it will eventually reach Sam. Um, And she talks about, like, wanting to meet him at the top of the Empire State Building. Um, She decides not to send the letter and kind of throws it away. But then Becky decides that she's going to send the letter on her behalf. Uh, Which, you know, that that feels like a kind of a thing that a Rosie O'Donnell Mm -hmm. character would do. You know, the kind of best friend who will step in and intervene and kind of take control of stuff um, that her her friend, you know, obviously thinks that she shouldn't be. Um, but, yeah, I, do, I mean, I, I, I kind of like, I mean, uh, you know, with some films, if you have characters watching another film, it just makes you think, oh, that's a better film. I should be watching that film. Uh, but fortunately, in this case, obviously, Sleepless in Seattle is a great film, so it doesn't make you think of that. But obviously, there's a lot of affair to remember stuff in this going forward. Um, you know, obviously starting with the setup and then kind of, you know, um, other people kind of talking about the film later on as well. Um, so, yeah. And then we get um, what I can only call a scene where Annie decides to stalk uh, Sam Baldwin. <laughs> well, and real quick, before you get into that, have we skipped over it. Tom Hanks asking Victoria out? Oh, yes. Yeah. That happens around the same time. Doesn't yeah. It? I, I, a call I, on the phone like these are yeah. in the same area. Um, yeah. But it's a great um, scene of Tom Hanks on the phone. Again, he does some great phone acting in this one as he tries to ask someone out and kind of just gets asked out instead. Like, well, yeah, he it gets was, turned around. There was some on discussion him. about 
There was some discussion about with him and Rob Reiner when he was talking about Cary Grant and he's like talking about like swatch colours and stuff. And and he did a very brief Cary Grant impression for like, you know, two lines. Um, Yeah. And so this is like him attempting to kind of ask someone out. And in the end, she kind of jumps in and is like, you know, let's go out. Uh, He's also explained to his son how if you're going to go out for a, a date, you should go for a drink because... If things don't work out, then you can abandon that date. It's it's low <laughs> but commitment. If you go for a meal, yeah, then you're kind of stuck, like eating a meal with someone that you don't want to be with. <laughs> so, um, I you know I like that he kind of has he's got a, a grip on what the dating scene is at least. Um, but yeah, and then I mean, I, what's funny is you know uh, a lot of like computer scenes in the eighties were always like uh, green screen like um, command terminals. And here, I don't know what they've done, but they've they've got like, um, I mean, these days I think you'd use uh, Lexus Nexus, but I don't think the Lexus Nexus existed in 1993, so I don't know how she's doing this. She just puts in "find Sam Baldwin" into the computer. I think and it, it just... at some point it, it calls it like a news terminal, and so it's looking for yeah. information in newspaper networks. I think, and so it's it, yeah, you know, it's it, newspaper documentation. I mean, it's, it's like a little early for the internet because I don't think the internet was... I mean, the internet existed mm-hmm. since like the 70s. Uh, but at this point, I don't think newspapers were using the internet in this way. But yeah, I mean, you know, some, she's doing a some, search. Some sort of news database where you can find obituaries. And yeah. I think maybe maybe it relies on her working for the newspaper that she's able to do this. She's yes. able to like be in, like, not the internet, but, but a network because of the newspaper. Yeah, there's... There's obviously some kind of newspaper archive that she's she's going through, um, and she keeps narrowing it down. Like she she calls the radio station first and gets the surname Baldwin uh, because obviously the surname was never on air. Then she searches for Sam Baldwin's, um, and there's a couple of them that are, that are like um, criminals. And I like that she just kind of chooses the architect because because I think that's <laughs> it, like what she wants. It must just be the architect. It couldn't possibly be one of these criminals. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. She's looking around, going, "Is that a film?" Yep, yeah, we're in a movie. It's definitely an architect. I've got this. I've yeah, <laughs> yeah, and and she also searches for Jonah as well, and then that's how she finds the obituary, uh, which gives details of where um, you know to send um, donations and stuff. Um, of course, they've moved since then, so I, I mean, I would thought she would have had to have access to some kind of government records to be able to get their address <laughs> but well, I, think, uh, I think the way she f- I think well she she hires her private eye using the newspaper as a front I think is the next yeah because I think she doesn't she I don't think she has an address I think she just has the name and Seattle and so that's what she gives to the the PI yeah um which she does filling out a form on a computer that is a fax which is just I'm sure that there are children these days who would watch that scene and be puzzled by what on earth is happening. I, I don't even know exactly just... what's happening. I mean, like, I've, <laughs> I've interacted with faxes. Fax machine, fax machines suck. And so I don't know how you use one yeah. to do anything effectively. Well, uh, in a job that I had many years ago, we had a dedicated program that could receive faxes as a computer file. Um, so we would have people who would fax uh, documents to us and that would immediately be decoded and loaded up as like a text file, which had tons of errors in. So you had to mm-hmm. go through and correct the board. Yeah, I can't um, imagine. But the, I, I yeah, but the what the 
my first office job oh go for it daniel was taking yeah. waxy fax paper you know does anyone remember no one would even remember them there, oh yeah before yeah. plain paper faxes it was on this waxy roll because it was easier and cheaper and it was my job to take the wax paper roll cut it when it came out photocopy it and then take that to the person that wanted it and keep the original <laughs> that was my job for like a year oh man I was fax boy. I was fax boy, and that that was at yeah. a, that was at a consulting engineers with architects. So like the faxes were hey. twenty four hours a day, all day, every day. It was amazing. That's how people send entire <laughs> blueprints through. Crazy. Uh, oh dear. yeah. So she uses this terminal to send a fax to a private eye, uh, uh, using the front of her, her, you know, it being a newspaper story, you know, research for that. Um, and obviously, while that is happening, then uh, we get introduced to Victoria. Um, and obviously, this is the other stumbling block, because in a romantic comedy, you have to have both. Both of the protagonists have to be with other people at some point. Now, obviously, we've killed off the first person that uh, Tom Hanks was with uh, to make way for this second person. Um, and the weirdest thing is now, look, obviously, the film is going to is going to make out that this Victoria person is terrible because she laughs. She laughs at jokes. What a terrible person. Oh my oh my lord, how could anyone ever go out with somebody who laughed at your jokes? I mean, clearly she's not right for him. Um but what I find funny is uh is that this actress, uh, Barbara Garrick, I've seen her in quite a few films, but I didn't really recognize her. But I'm guessing because when I saw her in Working Girl, um she probably had gigantic hair, uh, as everybody did in that film. That hair was the hair put it like a foot on every single actor in that film. Um, but yeah, and I, I only vaguely remember her from um, from uh, Eight Men Out as well, which is, uh, you know, it's quite a good film. Um, but yeah, so, you know, that was her debut as well. Eight Men Out, Working Girl. That's a pretty good start. Um, before this, she was in The Firm um, the same year. Uh, so she had a good 1993. Um, but yeah, I mean, I think she, you know, she's obviously given the thankless task of playing the person he isn't going to get together with. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I think she, you know, she plays this role really well. I like Victoria because... You know, she she seems to have a connection with Sam. Obviously, I don't think it's completely working between the two of them. Um, but, you know, she's kind of making an effort. She realizes where he is in terms of, you know, uh, being widowed and stuff. And and so obviously she's, she, you know, she's trying to kind of be, uh, you know, as good a person as she can. So uh, obviously the kid doesn't like her. So she's not destined to stay around. That's why um, uh, that, that, that insert right before that date is my favourite scene, though, when he starts yelling at Jonah about where Seattle is or where Baltimore is. This <laughs> uh, yeah. is my favourite Tom Hanks yelling. I sort of almost want him to go further, but he's he's just frustrated and he wants to get out of the door and he just keeps... That, that yelling he does at that is so good. It's that perfect Tom Hanks of, in anybody else's hands, he's a jerk. Mm-hmm. But for some reason... We talked about this in Turner and Hooch, Darren. Like he's so on the yeah. edge in that movie and so abrasive yet you love him the whole time. And in this one, he's just yelling at his eight-year-old about geography and about, you know, <laughs> I know you're trying to be nice to me and find a date for me, but he's just yelling at him the entire time. And yeah, oh, it's wonderful. Yeah, when he counts off and he's like, there's one, two, three, four, there's 20 states yeah. between yeah. here and there. <laughs> and like, he doesn't even bother counting the whole thing. He like starts and then just gives up. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, and he also he's yelling instructions about like he's got like Ipecac if someone yeah. swallows poison. Yeah, and so he's doing like the, like the babysitter check off as he's doing all of this too. Which no one seems to be yeah. paying much attention to at all. The babysitter has some surprising presence in this film for like saying two words. Yeah. 
And the weirdest thing is, she looks like Gabby Hoffman would in about three or four years' time. That's true. Like, it it, it seems like it's like, is that her big sister? Like, what is this? For a moment, I was like, wait there, is that Gabby Hoffman again? But no, it's just like, she just looks like Gabby Hoffman would in like 1995 Which, or something. Also, it's weird. Like, okay, so there's a babysitter now when he's going on a date. But earlier in the movie, he like got back from work. And there was no babysitter. He's just like, hey, Jonah, I'm home. Yes. So, like, obviously Jonah <laughs> spends time at home alone and can have his friend Jessica come over without permission or supervision. So why is there a babysitter now? His dad's never let him. Never met her before. Yeah, just a random stranger. So, yeah, but, like, so why is there a babysitter now? Is it because of Jessica? Is he like, okay, I can't trust this kid. I need a babysitter. Is it because it's nighttime rather than during the day? I don't know. I'm, I think there's a little bit of both. I think the when he saw them together, because obviously he, he closes the door and then he puts it open again <laughs> because obviously he's still keeping an eye on his kid. Um, but yeah, I think it might just be the fact that it's the night. That makes more sense to have a babysitter. You know, like if it's the daytime, just let the kid kind of, you know, what's the worst going to happen? He's only in a, a houseboat that could sink. <laughs> like, yeah, it, it's um, only surrounded on three sides by I, water. <laughs> yeah, it's not like he's going to drown or anything. Um yeah, so I'm, but yeah, I do like that the, the babysitter does kind of end up. It's really yeah, like you say, she does kind of like she, you just see her hair, and then later on, it, it's kind of like oh, she she's still about, um, and she's also not a very good babysitter because <laughs> when he's coming down the stairs, yeah. she uh, signals to Jonah to change the channel to something more appropriate. Yeah. She's like, hey, <laughs> I'm like, I love that. It's like, yeah. I mean, either she's a terrible babysitter or she's a great babysitter. Because there's no way that Jonah's going to be like, this babysitter, oh no. It's like, she lets him get away with stuff. Yeah. Uh, well, I mean, you know, he doesn't drown. But at the same time, he also flies to New York unsupervised. So, swings and Yeah, but that's that's um, when Tom Hanks was in the house. <laughs> yeah, so that's, he let that Yeah, happen. that's on him. Yeah, she was only turning up to take over from his irresponsible parenting. Um, yeah, so, uh, you know, Annie gets a phone call uh, because... Uh, Jonah is on the radio and he's basically talking to the doctor about the end of the date uh, where Victoria has come back. And I believe he at some point refers to Victoria as a hoe. Mm -hmm. Um, And later on in the film, somebody else refers to someone as a hoe, um, which I I just, I don't know, in a Nora Ephron film, that feels a little odd. Um, But yeah, and and I can't, there's there's also this whole weird thing where when Annie, I mean, Annie wakes up and she just elbows Walter in the face. (laughs) And then... And then she kind of says, oh, I'm just getting a phone call from... Uh, then she lies, obviously, mm-hmm. and says, you know, she's she's getting a phone call from Becky because Becky's worried about her, uh, you know, her, her partner. And, um, you know, she then goes into, like, a closet to listen to the radio and then gets caught. And she just starts lying about, like, Duluth. Um, and I kind of like how the scene finishes with Bill Pullman being like, Duluth is in... Is it South Dakota? No, North, Dakota. North Dakota. North Dakota. North Dakota, yeah, and he's like Duluth is in North Dakota, and that's just like where the film, when the scene. Well, ends. and it's like it's like it, that's how foggy he is from sleep. He's like she said Duluth, and the rest of the conversation <laughs> he wasn't registering. He was just trying to figure out like where's Duluth, where's Duluth. <laughs> yeah, um, I've definitely but at the same had time, sleepy the fa- times like that where like someone says something and it's like okay, I fixated on that and missed like four sentences of actual. Oh yes, you have conversation. <laughs> uh, well I, the, the fact that um walton knows where duluth is i think that's it's like well that's clearly he's not correct for annie that's not uh you know um, if somebody knows where duluth is i don't you know it doesn't feel like they're a very exciting person um you know uh but yeah so jessica 
gets the letter that Jonah has had from um, from Annie, and she encourages Jonah to write back. Uh, Jessica, of course, being an agent of chaos here. Um, and Je- see, this Jessica is where we get... and Becky are yeah, are on the same the wavelength, who... right? They are encouraging they... in making this happen. They're the ones who push this plot along. Uh, without them, nothing mm-hmm. happens. Even though it's a fantasy that, but... like, nine times out of ten, or a hundred, uh, ninety-nine times out of a hundred, will not come true. It's like very rare that this thing could actually happen. But they're just both like, "Let's do it, you guys. We got to do it." It seems just perfectly right. The the kind of proposal to meet at the top of the Empire State Building, uh, or the ESB, I guess, as Jessica would have, would refer to it. Um, that that then prompts her to watch an affair to remember later on, and she she ends up like crying tears the same way that both Becky and uh, and Annie did earlier. So mm-hmm. I kind of like that, like the yeah, and, the, and the fact that that's the proposal when in the movie that they're watching it did not work, like that was the cause <laughs> of the problem in Affair to Remember, which always kills me. I'm like, they're like, let's do this. It's so romantic. It's like no 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 that, that's that not doesn't what work in that movie. Yeah. <laughs> And actually, Bad things really, happen. you're tempting fate. You're, God, God knows what might happen on your way there, yeah. I mean, I, I think that it's almost like this film is trying to correct the ending of an affair to remember and make it happen. <laughs> you got this wrong and so it's, I fixed yeah, it. Yeah, so it's like, you know, yeah. It's like uh, at some point, you know, Sam Beckett leapt into someone's body and was like, we've got to get him to meet at the top of the Empire State Building. You know, somewhere off screen, Al is like screaming about the odds. Um, but yeah, so I um, while they're on their date as well, it should be said, the, the private eye takes pictures of Victoria and Sam. And this prompts Annie to uh, go to Seattle, but say she's going to Chicago. That's right. She lies to Walter again. It's kind of funny because she she like walks into like Rosie O'Donnell's office again, not doing any work. And she kind of sits down <laughs> and he's like, um, you know, I need to re- I need to research this story about radio stations. And then Rosie O'Donnell's like, OK. And then she kind of just leaves the office. Like there's an implication that she knows what she's going to do. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah. And then we get like we get this kind of nice uh, like the. it's funny because like the ending of this film wants you to believe that it was some kind of kismet. Um, but it's pretty contrived. It, not really, because. Yeah, well, this, well that's, the funny thing is, she goes to Seattle. Um, this is something that I forgot about the film. She goes to Seattle, and obviously she lands just as Victoria is going um, to um, somewhere else. And they're they're in the airport. Obviously, post 9-11, none of this would have been possible because there's no way you could yeah, have just gone to the gate with someone. Yeah, no, no. So you can't, you couldn't, by coincidence, see Meg Ryan getting off another plane. You'd have to be, you know, way out, you know, in the parking. Um, but yeah, so as as she lands, obviously Meg Ryan, being, uh, you know, the kind of uh, beauty that she is, she catches the eye of Tom Hanks. Um, you know, Victoria has left, and Tom Hanks is now instantly infatuated with this woman who's just got off the plane. And he tries to follow her, but unfortunately, he gets lost in the crowds in the uh, in the airport obviously unaware that annie is there to stalk him so so um she then goes Wait, to she his should house recognize but him. she's got pictures of him i don't yeah. think she sees him but I he's think she two just feet like, away sees over him kind of she doesn't expect to see sam baldwin at the airport but if i had pictures from <laughs> right as she's getting eye, off her plane if i had pictures from a private eye and i walk off my plane i'm like wait wait that's the guy <laughs> 
she, I don't she, think she looks in his direction. Knows to be fair. In a movie, but she doesn't know she's in a movie. So <laughs> Rosie O'Donnell and Sam know they're in the movie, but Meg Ryan doesn't, so she's she's not expecting it. I don't. I don't think she actually looks in his direction. I think she's just looking around, and he only really kind of starts looking at her after she's like walked past him. Um, but yeah, she loses him at the airport. She goes to their house. Obviously, she's got the address from the private eye. Uh, but they're obviously out on the boats um, and then she kind of drives along and sees them, you know, on in this boat uh, driving around uh, the docks. And then they're playing on the beach and she's staring from a distance. <laughs> and all of this leads up to her showing up opposite um, on the opposite side of a very busy road uh, where Sam and Jonah are meeting someone. Um, and obviously she doesn't know who this person is, but from behind, she mistakes his sister, played by Rita Wilson, uh, mother of Chet Hayes, um, for Victoria, because they do kind of have similar hairstyles. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, she then thinks that obviously he's met someone, which technically speaking he has, but it's it's not Rita Wilson's character. <laughs> so it's a, it's a weird thing where she thinks he's met someone, but and he has, but it's not her. Um, and they kind of say hello to each other from the opposite sides of the road. Um, and then she instantly flees back to Baltimore. Um, and, you know, she tells this story to Rosie O'Donnell. And Rosie O'Donnell's like, you didn't do anything else? And, of course, when she says, no, I only said hello, we find out that that is a line from the film, if I remember. Um, That's, that scene we, has always stayed with me, though. When I think of Sleeps in Seattle, that sort of look on Meg Ryan's face when she looks across... They, it's it's shot really well. It, I think it's a like you said, it's a weird outcome. They're on either side of a road and it's kind of busy and stuff. But there is something about the way that's shot and the look on, especially Meg Ryan's face, that's just perfect. Like it really does. I find it very affecting and like it really solidifies that part of the story of that. Yes, there's something there. There's going to be an obstacle, but but that connection's real. It's it's a yeah, it's a great shot. Yeah, um, and I th- I think it's funny because obviously. Um, you know, uh, Jonah's letter arrives and, you know, obviously it's been written by an eight-year-old, <laughs> uh, probably with some assistance from Jessica, I would say. And I like that Rosie O'Donnell kind of is like, you know, so he can't write. <laughs> you know, like, which I love that Rosie O'Donnell at this point is so invested in this relationship happening and breaking up Annie and Walter that she's basically like, who cares that he, you know, he sounds like an eight-year-old in this particular letter. <laughs> Uh, you know, just ignore that fact and just concentrate on the fact that he, you know, he wants to meet you. He wants to meet you at the Empire State Building. Do it. Yeah. Um, but I, yeah, I, I mean, I then we, we get Rita Wilson, um, you know, in her only really substantial scene in this film. Again, I don't know what Nora Ephron has, like, she just keeps bringing people in for one scene and having them do, like, you know, a great scene and then leave. And Victor Garber. Yes, I was going to say as well, Victor Garber, obviously, you know, uh, people will recognize him from tons of things from everything uh, i think well i think alias was probably the first time that i really kind of noticed him um but then going back and seeing like other films and it's all of a sudden it's like oh victor garber is in this and he's in this and this. like he's all over the place um and obviously he you know he's a wonderful actor um and what i what i kind of like is the fact that um you know she uh, susie as played by rita wilson tells the story of like she recognizes you know, meeting on top of the Empire State Building as being from An Affair to Remember. And she kind of goes into the plot breakdown of An Affair to Remember because Sam hasn't seen that film. Um, and then the pair of them get, him and Victor Garber, get very emotional over a different film, which is not like a romantic comedy. And I just find it funny that, like, 
all three characters get emotional, but obviously the men are getting emotional over, you know, like a, a war film, and she's getting emotional <laughs> over like an actual like, romantic comedy. Um, you know, once again, uh, the contrast between uh, Venusians and Martians is laid bare for us all. Um, but yeah, I mean, I mean I, they're also making fun of her. Yeah, yeah. So like, yeah, and, and you know, they're they're getting emotional about that movie, and and they pick like the least romantic comedy <laughs> movie. And it's like, okay, well, now we're gonna start crying about this. And yeah. I think they like they do get emotional, but they're overplaying it. Yeah, but I, I mean, I think it's funny because like immediately you get the kind of the interaction between these characters, and you understand that they are comfortable with each other mm. enough to kind of uh, you know rib each other a little bit. Um, yeah, but uh, but also the fact that Rita Wilson is married to Tom Hanks and she ends up playing his sister is such an odd, uh, odd thing. It does feel a little weird. Yeah, and and I'm like, I'm like, okay, like. Uh, yeah, I mean, I guess it's she probably would have been uh, near set anyway, you know. So, I guess she was there, and they were like, "Why not? Why not come on board and actually get some money out of this thing uh, while you're around?" Uh, but yeah, and her and Victor Garber as well. It's really weird because obviously you know Rita Wilson is married to Tom Hanks, but her and Victor Garber seem to make like a really good couple as well, who were kind of like playing off each other. Um, you know, kind of makes me wish that there'd be more Rita Wilson, Victor Garber. Uh, you know, romantic comedies at some point in the nineties, but obviously that <laughs> did not happen. I, I mean, I'm in favor of anything that gets like generally more Victor Garber on screen. I think yeah. it's great. Yeah, he's awesome. And more Rita Wilson. Come on, I mean, uh, yeah, 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 like, absolutely. Like this is a great scene. Yeah, and, and uh, when you're an actor, you you do what you have to do, even if that's playing the sibling of your spouse. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Uh, and this is obviously more successful than the previous film Rita Wilson was in with Tom Hanks, which obviously uh, was a notorious bomb. Uh, so, you know, third time's a charm. I think Volunteers did okay at the box office, actually. Uh, and that is a re- that's a quite a fun film. Um, I ended up enjoying that more than I thought I would. Uh, even if Tom Hanks is trying to put on some kind of weird, like, JFK accent and he's not doing it successfully. Um, but yeah, so, you know, everybody has kind of... We're at the point where... Um, Annie is kind of willing to settle for Walter. Um, And also Jessica um, has a mother who is a travel agent. And so she books tickets for Jonah to go to New York by himself. Uh, But I do love that, like, uh, like, he's like, how much? I think he's got $80 and she's got 42 or the other way around. Mm -hmm. Um, Yeah, it's it's like 120 bucks. Yeah, but they're like, basically, that will cover cab fares in New York. Um, Yep. Which, you know, (laughs) like... Feels kind of from, real from the airport yeah. to the Empire State Empire, Building. Empire State Building and back. Yeah, that might do it. Yeah, that that's probably seems like it, in the nineties. That's a, yeah, in the two thousands, it wouldn't cover cab fare for that trip. That would it. That's like one way. Yeah, I mean, when I went to New York, I always took one of those uh, shuttle buses with all the other people because you only you only pay like twenty dollars or whatever. And I mean, admittedly, it takes you like three hours to get to your hotel, uh, but at mm-hmm. the very least, you know, you've spent the minimum amount. Um, but yeah, so they, they've booked this ticket. And what I like as well is <laughs> when when she's like, you have to be 12 um, so you can travel as an, an accompanied minor. And he's like, no one will believe I'm 12. And she's like, do you want me to put that, you know, you're extremely short for your age, but you don't want people to bring it up. And I thought he was going to say no, but he goes, yeah, do that. Like, <laughs> it's it's <a> like idea. <laughs> yeah, that'll work. You know, they'll believe they'll believe that. Um, but yeah, and then we I mean, what I find funny about Annie and Walter as they're kind of you know sorting out stuff for the wedding um she describes their relationship as like kismet but not <laughs> which is if i was walter i'd feel insulted by that quite frankly but um 
And I can reveal that when we eventually get to him, he gives her like a Tiffany. Well, he gives her a ring that's in a Tiffany box, I think. Uh, but it's mm-hmm. not from Tiffany's. Uh, but apparently that that ring uh, would cost $5,000 um, if brought new and not a family heirloom as it is here. Um, so that's a very expensive <laughs> ring to be given to someone who seems indifferent towards your relationship. Um, it seems pretty pretty solid, especially uh, uh, like especially thirty years ago. Yeah. Oh yeah. Yeah. Uh, but yeah. So you know, obviously Annie and Walter are kind of um, you know figuring out stuff to do for the wedding. Uh, Sam, having not had intercourse for roughly eighteen months, has booked a week- weekend away with Victoria, um, so they can go to some hotel somewhere. <laughs> so, um, you know, which I think was something that Victoria had suggested prior to the, the flight. Mm-hmm. Um, a weekend at, getaway. Yes. Uh, which obviously, you know, this is rom-com language for um, going to a hotel to bang. And um, I, the funny thing is, obviously, this is, this is where, you know, Jonah has basically uh, disappeared. And uh, as we said, uh, Sam comes home looking for Jonah, going to every room. Uh, the babysitter is there also looking in every room and it turns out obviously he is not there uh, because he is on a plane from Seattle to New York um, and they are eventually... flying first class by the way oh yeah like, he's in a first class seat yeah I, I mean I like I don't I don't know how Jessica has managed to do it that there was like no payment taken but I guess maybe the her, <laughs> her mother's mother's uh, company cover the money until the client pays or something I don't, I don't know but um, you know, it'd be nice to have Jessica could, as a friend. It could quite be frankly. something like that where it's like a, a a company booking, like a travel agency booking. Yeah. And then payment is is um has like a sixty day pat like window after services before uh, it goes to collection or something like that. Yeah. I well, I I mean I don't know, but he's enjoying it because uh, they bring him. Uh, do they bring him like a pen or something? They bring him something to, you know. Yeah, to, yeah, a pen. Yeah, so that he, <laughs> which I, and they go to take his backpack, but he he doesn't let them take the backpack. Um, but yeah, I I mean what I love is that they get to um they get to to Jessica's to question obviously where he's gone, and she says M Y, and what does the father think she's saying like. No, no way. way. No way, yeah. But <laughs> and I like how instantly Tom Hanks is like, no, that like it's the wrong that would That's be NW. NW. Yeah, and I, but I like that he's kind of picked up on her word like her kind of abbreviations. Um and then obviously this is when she says New York City and you know like that's where it, and what what I kind of like is instantly Tom Hanks is just like I guess I'm not going anywhere with Victoria. I'm just going to go catch a plane and go to New York. Mm-hmm. Like call off the weekend getaway um you know. And obviously we were, we were debating Yes. Whether or not, do you think he called Victoria? I don't think he, or, like, I think he probably just, just like, have was the like, worst no, Valentine's I have to take care of my son. I mean, I, I guess the implication is probably off screen. He said, Victoria, I'm not going to be able to make it. Um, but yeah, I, don't, I mean, he does he seem to instantly get on a flight because obviously we, we're given a little map of the US and we have the little dots showing where mm-hmm. Sam is and showing where, um, where Jonah is. Um and what I like is that... Um, What's when... Seattle to New York? Like a six hour? Five to six hours. At least. At least. Well, also because you're flying also... against the time zones as well, aren't you? So mm-hmm. Yeah, when... so it's going to be like an eight hour yeah. shift yeah. compared to leaving and arriving. And and like I'd say pretty unlikely, at least, at least nowadays, I'd say it's probably pretty unlikely that you'd get a direct Seattle to New York. You'd probably oh, be stopping no. in yeah. Chicago or Atlanta at the very least. Yeah, or I mean, isn't uh, what's one of the big hubs? The one that has the uh, 
there's one that's further slightly further south I might be thinking of Denver, but there's like there's a few Dallas big. Dallas is a big hub as well. I might think. Yeah, I'm thinking. Yeah, I'm yeah. Probably there's like of Salt Lake City, yeah. Denver, Dallas, yeah, um, Atlanta, and Chicago. I'd say would be like the main hubs. Honestly, from Seattle, like he might have a stop in Canada, going Seattle it's, to yeah. New York. I've had trips where I had a layover in Canada, even though it was like all United States. Aside from that, yeah, I, I so yeah. So he may have hit like Calgary or something. It's unlikely that he would have been able to do it in a single flight. Um, but they both managed to get there in a single flight. But then I also like how when he gets out of the airport, you have these guys who are like managing the taxi queue <laughs> and kind of like mm-hmm. getting cabs for people. And I like how it's, it's only like a quick joke, but obviously they do it for um, for Jonah when he lands and he, you know, and then when Sam lands, he like starts fighting for, with some, for someone with the, for the next cab. And he like gives money to one of these guys and they put him He's in like, the money, cab. He's like, money, money. Yeah. I want money, I have it. <laughs> yeah. So, and then they just get him in the cab and, and there he goes. I like how calmly it goes for Jonah and how Sam is more kind of het up. So it ends up going a, a bit more, a bit, a bit more of a conflict. Um, it's worth saying as well, obviously, something that happens in Tom Hanks films in the 80s. Um, we get the World Trade Center in the background of one shot um, mm. uh, because I, I guess it's just a landmark. But uh, yeah, um, I, I mean, should... it's kind of hard not to see it. Yeah. Know, on, on some shots of New York. I mean, Tom Hanks's first kind of proper film, Mazes of Monsters, finishes at the World Trade Center. <laughs> that's where the final setting is for the final scene. He's going to jump off it. Um, that's one of the. So it's always it always it's really weird because even when there's films that like in Bachelor Party, they make a joke about World Trade Center, even though the film is set in Los Angeles. <laughs> so it's just something that kind of shows up in Tom Hanks films. Um, but yeah, I should also say that when we went to Seattle, the Space Needle kind of came out of nowhere. Uh, obviously, mm-hmm. while we were in Chicago, we got to see the Sears Tower. And now we're in New York. We get to see the Empire State Building from uh, 30 Rock uh, from the Rainbow Room, uh, which is kind of directly across from there. Um, so once again, uh, Nora Ephron showing you landmarks so you know exactly where you are. Uh, Jonah goes to the Empire State Building and uh, gets to the top. Um, and the funny thing is, uh, Annie and Walter are at 30 Rock and they are breaking up with each other. <laughs> and and I, I think Walter has kind of realized what's happening, uh, even though he makes a Dom DeLuise joke about the champagne. Um, and... <laughs> He, he, they, the two of them have just kind of reached a point where, you know, obviously the relationship isn't working and Annie kind of explains what she's done with, uh, with Sam and how, you know, she was going to meet him at the Empire State Building. Um, and, you know, maybe he's there now. Uh, and it's really funny because obviously this happens on Valentine's Day. <laughs> so for yeah. Walter's Valentine's meal, he's gone out with the person that he's about to marry and is the love of his life. And she's basically said, and he's I, given her the, the ring. Yes. Yeah. A very expensive ring. And she's basically said to him, oh, by the way, I've set up to meet another guy at the top of the Empire State Building tonight. And, you know, relationship over. I think he takes it quite well, though. He's like, oh, you know, well, okay. Yeah. yeah. He, he takes it really, really well. I don't yeah. think he was invested in it that much either. I think it was yeah, not really something that was going to work out in the long run for either of them. He does at least get to get well, he's two years away from while you were sleeping. So I never felt too I was going to say, I, yeah. I I, always like to think of it. It's like, well, and then he just goes from this to while you were sleeping. Yeah. And it works out fine with, <laughs> with Sandra Bullock. So, Yeah, I mean, things go downhill for Tom Hanks in the next film. So, uh, yeah, he does, he does quite well. Um, 
Uh, but yeah, so obviously Annie runs all the way from 30 Rock to the Empire State Building. <laughs> she could have got a cap, but she runs. Um, and when she gets there, she speaks to the guard and she... Oh, I should say Sam has reached the Empire State Building as before this and has obviously gone up mm-hmm. uh, to find his son. And, you know, she says to the guard, I've got to go up there. You know, I, you know I'm, I've arranged to meet this guy there. And obviously he's like an affair to remember. And she's like, yes. And he's like, that's my wife's favorite film. So he lets her up. <laughs> so... Okay, I guess that's how you get into the Empire State Building after hours. Well, um, you, you have to be superhumanly charming as well, which Meg Ryan. Well, yeah, <laughs> yeah, as always. <laughs> yeah, um, uh, and I, I want to say the sequence where uh, Sam and Jonah like come back together at the top of the Empire State Building. I think that's actually like maybe my least favorite sequence of Tom Hanks in this film. Like, I don't know, it like the emotions don't hit the same that they do in most of the rest of the film for me. And I don't know what it is about it. Like, and, and maybe it's just, I don't know. Maybe there's like something clunky about the dialogue or something. Um, but that, that reuniting and like him, like finally getting his son after the stress of the flight and everything, that part, um, it's yeah, that's like my least favorite bit in the whole film. Something about it feels off. I mean, yeah. I, I mean, I guess obviously what all it's doing really is setting up them getting back together very quickly because, They've then got to go in the down elevator as yeah. um, as Annie comes in the up end elevator and arrives at the observation deck. Um, and she obviously walks around looking for people. What I did like as well is earlier, like Jonah is just randomly walking up to people and saying, are you Annie? Um, over and over again, <laughs> just random women. Are you Annie? Way bef- but way before sunset, which is when yeah. Annie yeah. is like, well, me at sunset. He's like yeah. there at like four in the afternoon. It's like... Jonah, you're early. Slow down. Stop asking people. <laughs> I mean, I guess he just went straight there from when his plane landed. So he hasn't really... Where mm-hmm. else? Because he's got no money really to do anything else. It's not like he can go and book into a hotel for a couple of hours. Um, so When's his return flight? When is he flying back? I don't know that they ever discussed that. I think they were just like, we've got to get you out there on the 14th of February. And that's it. Like, I, d- I didn't recall uh, Gabby Hoffman coming up with any like plan to get them back. <laughs> Yeah, it's like Monday um, week or something. Yeah. You've got 12 days to spend there. <laughs> <Just> go <hang laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, just go hang around Central Park. You'll be fine. Um, yeah, so, and then obviously we get the, you know, she she looks around. There's nobody there. She finds a bag, uh, fortunately. Um, and obviously Sam and Jonah return. And, you know, Tom Hanks recognizes Meg Ryan from when she was standing across the road in Seattle and from when she was in the airport in Seattle. Um, and she, you know, she just kind of had emerged in his life from his point of view, from her point of view, she had deliberately <laughs> stalked him and sought him out. Um, uh, and obviously set up this meeting that he hadn't agreed to, um, but was kind of aware of, um, due to his sister, um, you know, kind of going through the, the plot of an affair to remember, which obviously ended in tragic circumstances. <laughs> um, you know, and in this case, it doesn't end in tragic circumstances because Annie and Sam, obviously, um, you know, they have an instant connection. Um, and uh, as noted on IMDb trivia, they spend about two minutes together in the entire film, <laughs> um, which I would think is I think is one of the things that I think other rom-coms tried to do, where they tried to have it so that the the two people were apart for the film. Um, but I think a lot of them found it very hard and they ended up kind of giving in like you know half an hour before the end and kind of putting them together and having them argue and stuff um uh, so yeah and they get in the uh, in the elevator with Jonah smiling and then Jimmy Durante comes back to ruin the end of the film for us all 
um, <laughs> with I don't know what was he trying to sing? Oh, make someone happy. Uh, yeah. Uh, I so, think I think Andrew Andrew might be right there when when Sam and Jonah get together on the top when he finds him there. It's like a they know they need to reach back up like in 30 seconds time for the actual big sort of emotional heft mm-hmm. so it does feel a little bit sort of it feels a little rushed it feels a little less yeah impactful than it otherwise would be yeah. rushed is right to be honest with you like the end climax does feel like we you know we've got to get to the inevitable kind of meetup between the two main characters um and there's not really much we like we've got to just get there and that kind of reuniting of um Sam and Jonah, it has to, like, they can't both end up meeting Annie at the same time by coincidence, you know, and there's not much space on the observation deck of the Empire State Building for them to not run into each other. Um, So it Mm -hmm. just kind of feels inevitable that that has to happen. Um, But yeah, I still, I like the kind of couple of minutes that we get here at the end uh, with Meg Ryan and uh, and obviously uh, Tom Hanks together. I think that the funny thing is, uh, you know, there was some chemistry between the two of them in... um, uh, Joe versus Volcano, but because um, because she was playing like three different kind of characters, and I don't know, like the kind of the inhabiting those different roles kind of took a kind of put a little bit of space between her and Tom Hanks in the, those films, um, and obviously it also ends with an absurd thing where they they jump into a volcano and get spit back out, um, so it like you know it it felt a bit kind of artificial even though there was some chemistry so it's nice to kind of get them on screen here obviously the next time they're together they're going to be on screen a hell of a lot more so, <laughs> so. yeah they got they got a lot more in in you've got mail and this one also it's like tom hanks's acting for this is like he's just staring at her and you know he it, it's just sam being transfixed yeah which is what he did at the airport as well he was kind yeah, of yeah 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 yeah, yeah so he was just playing that constantly. same it's, it's a good it's a good way of doing it. Uh, yeah, the, the transfiction. And I thought you say that, Darren, when you were talking about his acting in that very first like speech when he talk, when he is sleepless in Seattle the first time, it sets up all of this because you know how deep, you know, you get, you feel Tom Hanks that entire time and Meg Ryan. So when they get to the end here, even though they haven't really seen each other that much, it does, it does have that depth of feeling like just in an instant. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and he's also processing like, oh, you were, you were in, in Seattle, what what are you doing yeah, like here? His, his Wait, you're like the person. Wait, and I, saw, at the... I saw you at the airport, and I saw you in Seattle. Why do I have to be in New York <laughs> to actually talk to you? Yeah, and at the same time, uh, he in the beginning of the film, he's like, "Oh, I, I, I could never love someone again. Like it was just a one-time thing. There's no one out there. I'd be like basically settling myself down, or and and not and compromising." my relationship for for someone else but then he's like here you can see that he's like oh no there is possibility for me to find someone again yeah it's, it's lovely and you imagine that there'll be 10 minutes of staring and maybe some hand holding and like we're deeply in love and then and then sam's like so were you in did you just fly out to seattle to look at me across the road like what was <laughs> <Yeah>. happening there <laughs> yeah and then and then and then uh, you know um I'm sure Sam will be like, do you realize it's going to cost us like $4,000 to fly back home? <laughs> like, <laughs> you know, like how are we going to afford the plane tickets? Like what, you know? Um, are, so are you coming with us now or do we fly <laughs> yeah. back to Seattle and then you'll fly out again in a little while? Do you need what to go doing? back to Baltimore <laughs> to pack things up? You probably have to quit your job for unethical behavior. 
<laughs> yeah, once they find out what you've done. Um, yeah, I mean, like at some point, they're going to talk to Becky, and Becky's going to be like, oh, yeah, it was crazy when she hired a private eye to track you down, wasn't it? And I'm sure he'll be like, what? Wait there. You never told I us that. Like have the conversation that, so you mean the 12 minutes before you met me, you were breaking up with your fiancé over there? <laughs> Yeah, if we'd have looked in the right direction, we could have seen you breaking up with him yes. uh, before you came. <laughs> <laughs> like, uh, yeah, uh, but uh, what I—I I mean, you know, obviously, the whole point of the film is that they they get together, and I think it's really mm-hmm. well executed. And it, you know, uh, it's one of those things where the like the fake out of them going down, like, and sh- while she's coming up. Uh, like I feel other films would have kind of misplayed that a little bit but I think you know Nora Ephron manages to do it for just the right amount of time so that you know you think maybe they won't come back up um, and then obviously what well, you know the bag is the thing that brings them together um, yeah and th- like there's such a, a, a quick sense is like I know this is gonna work out like this is not like yeah. the movie's not gonna end where it was the near miss after all of this and so there's enough like faith in it it's like how are they going to get them back together? How are they going to get them to actually meet? And then she picks up the background and you're like, oh, okay, I see how it's going to work. Yeah. yeah. And I think Nora definitely does a great job of of moments where other films would have gotten it wrong or played it wrong or even cheesy moments. She plays it in a way that it doesn't seem that cheesy at all. And it like it really works for the film. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, so, well, then I feel like we should go to uh, verdicts. I feel like with pretty much all of these uh, uh, films from the, the Golden 14, it should be kind of easy to figure out where people are going to go. But there have been some surprises. Um, so let's go to, uh, I'm going to say, Daniel first. T-Hanks or no T-Hanks? Uh, absolutely T-Hanks. Um, yeah, I really enjoy this movie. I'll probably watch it again before the year's out because it'll be on TV or I'll drift across it. Um, two very quick things. One is it has an absolutely dreadful poster. Um, the theatrical poster is just terrible. Um, and we've I've neglected to mention the true star of the film. So Tom Hanks and Meg Ryan are good, but nothing can hold a handle to that houseboat that he lives on. I have wanted to live <laughs> in that place now. It's probably even above uh, Don Draper's New York apartment in my... I, absolutely would love to live there given a second uh if possible that, that house is amazing it. it's amazing and the shots they when they show it from the outside with the lights um and then they look out to the mm-hmm. boats coming past with the lights they oh, spend nyquist man like nori efron's good at it and having spend nyquist do that for you uh, makes everything just like sing it's, a, it's such a beautiful place yeah i on the poster as well the, the tagline is extremely long because it's what if someone you never met Someone you never saw, someone you never knew, was the only someone for you, and that's <laughs> that's a terrible tagline. That's awful. I mean, it's not as bad as Splash, where it's like literally he was a man, she's a mermaid, and they met, and then they <laughs> like it's literally the whole plot is just on the poster, and it goes on forever, and you're like, this isn't a tagline. This is the st- this is the story. Um, but yeah, that but is. You can do a better tagline in half as many words. I don't. I just. I don't know if I like taglines. Well, I, I mean, what? I mean, if you've got the words Tom Hanks and Meg Ryan in big letters at the top of your poster, what else do you need? Like, <laughs> do you know? Uh, there should be enough to sell it. Um, mm-hmm. But uh, verdicts from Andrew and Kestra. Solid T Hanks for me. Absolutely, T uh, Hanks for me. I I love this film. 
Yeah, and I would say T. Hanks for me as well. I mean, you know, Tom Hanks' speech at the beginning is amazing. Obviously, he won an oh, Oscar it's wonderful. for a, a, dis- a different film, so <laughs> so he couldn't have won for this one. Um, but yeah, just like him doing the whole kind of story about his wife and everything, like that is what sells this film. If you don't believe that, mm-hmm. then the rest of this film is just nonsense because it'd be people running around for no real reason. Um, but yeah, I mean, is... I was crying as he was saying it. So, <laughs> oh, me too. You know, and the the fact that Meg then cuts to like Meg Ryan crying. You're like, I understand Meg. I know I know what's happening here. You know, like yeah. It's uh yeah that is the thing that sells it and you know I think that is what made this like a huge success, um it's just because I'm sure people were like you've got to see it because you know Tom Hanks is just amazing in this, um you know ignore the two films he did in 1990, <laughs> um you know this is a different Tom Hanks it doesn't feel like the same Tom Hanks as like Turner and Hooch and the Burbs like this feels like a completely different Tom Hanks like he's you know obviously made a, a specific choice to kind of change direction, um you know. Uh, so before we go, is there anything that you wish to plug? I'm going to start with Andrew and Kestra. Um, just our usual podcast together, Disney Animation Minute Essential, uh, going through Disney animated movies one minute at a time. Our next film will be 101 Dalmatians. Oh, perfect. Perfectly timed to for the resurgence of Cruella, getting a mm-hmm. yeah. Cruella 2. So Tru- we'll be talking about that it. soon, and yeah. obviously Cruella uh, Emma Stone will be it's gonna factor be in. talked about. <laughs> and Daniel, anything that you wish to plug? Uh, houseboats, I guess. I don't have any podcasts to plug, so I'm big fan of houseboats, so I'll plug them. I mean, given how hostile like 95% of the land in Australia is, I would think houseboats would do pretty well out there. Um, you know, you've got a lot of coastline. You've got a lot of coastline and a, a lot of bush that people just cannot live in. So... I don't know why there's not whole cities just floating around the sides of Australia, to be honest with you. Give it 10 years, I guess. Well, yeah, <laughs> yeah exactly, yeah. Uh, yeah, pretty soon only the bush will be left. Um, and you can follow us at uh, T underscore FT memory. Um, thanks to everyone for being my guest here today. Thanks, Dan. Thanks, thanks for having us. Time. And next time I will be wandering around the streets of Philadelphia. Comes and goes in a minute. Where's the real stuff in life to cling to? Love is the answer. Someone to love is the answer. Once you found her, build your world around her. Just one, someone happy, and you will be happy too.